Hi, I'm Johanna Ferreira, content director of Pop Sugar Juntos. Juntos is all about celebrating Latin A culture, pride, our many intersectional identities, and joy. Thanks to support from Prime, there's so much to get into over at Juntos this month. From conversations with the Latin A minds behind our favorite new movies and resurrected TV shows, to thoughtful celebrity commentary and exclusive interviews with some of the biggest Latin music artists today. And it doesn't stop there. Get more of the music, movies, and shopping you love on Prime. Whatever you're into, it's on Prime. Visit Amazon.com slash Prime to get more of whatever you're into from streaming to shopping. And get all of our latest coverage at PopSugar.com slash Juntos. Con amor, Johanna. This episode is brought to you by State Farm. If you're a small business owner, you know that it isn't just your business. It's your life. And whatever your business might be, you want someone who understands. That's why you might want to check out State Farm Small Business Insurance. Why? Because State Farm agents are small business owners too, living and working in your community. That means they know what it takes to help you personalize your policies for your small business needs. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Talk to your local agent today. I'd like to ask him, so Mr. President, when exactly was America great? In your, from your perspective, was it back in the in 19th century when we had slavery? I guess clearly not. Was it great when um, women didn't have the right to vote? I assume not. Was it when we had a, a system essentially of American apartheid? I, I assume not. Hello, welcome to the Zircon Show on the Vox Media Podcast Network. You all know that one of my obsessions of late has been whether America still is a democracy, whether it ever has been, whether it is one, whether it should be one, but in particular, how some of the distortions in the system, ranging from the Electoral College to the way geography becomes representation, to gerrymandering, uh, to the filibuster, how they're ending up stacking the political deck, how they're making outcomes less legitimate, and how increasingly there is a divide between a Democratic Party that wants a more small-D Democratic America and a Republican Party that sees more democracy as a threat to its interests. And, and that, to me, is a pretty dangerous space. Someone whose work I've been interested in in this space is Eric Holder. Uh, Eric Holder, of course, was the attorney general under President Barack Obama, the first African-American attorney general. Since leaving the White House, he has founded and, and chairs the National Democratic Redistricting Committee. And that's become not just the focus of his political work, but also the focus of much of President Obama's post-presidential political work. He actually recently merged Organizing for America into this project. And I think the, the reason for it is is a, a growing sense that if you don't get some of the fundamental questions of elections right and representation right, then all the other policy you care about, climate change, healthcare, economy, whatever it is, it doesn't work out. It, 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 it's not going to be there. So I wanted to have Holder on the show to, to talk about that work, to talk about what motivates it, what its chances are, what the strategies he's trying to employ are, what he thinks of some of the counter arguments to it. And also to think a little bit more broadly about other parts of his uh, legacy and his role, some of the speeches uh, he gave on race in the Obama era, some of the work he did or did not do in terms of prosecuting financial crimes during the financial crisis or prosecuting bankers, I should say, during the financial crisis. I think it's a pretty interesting conversation. I appreciate him taking the time to do it. So as you can email me at EzraKleinShow at Vox.com. Here is Eric Holder. 
Eric Holder, welcome to the podcast. Good to be here. Thanks for having me. You made a comment recently about what you're trying to do that struck me as really telling. You you called your work a partisan effort at good government. Can, can you talk a bit about what you mean by that? Yeah, I think the reality is that the two parties stand on different sides of uh, this electoral fairness issue. And um, for us to get as a nation back to the place where I think we need to be, which is to have just a fair electoral system, one that is, you know, gives the people the opportunity to truly express their views. Um, the Democratic Party has to take on the Republican Party uh, and fight for that fairness. But I, I always say, as I talk to people, um, what we're trying to do with the National Democratic Redistricting Committee is not to come up with a system that gerrymanders for Democrats. I, I simply want to get to a, a place where we have um, fair contests, because I'm really confident that if we have fair contests, fair elections, Democrats and progressives will do um, just fine. We have uh, the right program. We are connected to the people on, on the issues. Um, demography is, is, is tending uh, our, our way. And I, I think the only way that Republicans continue to um, maintain the political power that they have, have achieved is through by um, cheating, in essence. What's lurking behind that word fair? What, make, what are the principles that make an electoral system fair? Well, I think you have to look first at kind of results. You would expect to have legislatures that kind of generally reflect the way in which the people have voted. We have seen since the gerrymandering that Republicans did in 2011 in state after state, at the federal level as well, where you have results that are inconsistent with what the people voted for, where you have Democrats winning substantially, getting substantially greater numbers of votes, but getting you know, far fewer um, seats in state legislatures and in Congress than Republicans do. So that's that's a first place I think that you have to look, uh, and in some ways it's it's the greatest test. I think you know the Supreme Court will be looking at what happened in um, in Wisconsin. Um, as a result of the uh, gerrymandering, that if we look at Wisconsin, they'll be looking at North Carolina. And in those two states, you see places where, you know, Democrats got over 50 percent, um, you know, at, on one federal level. When it comes to the state level, I guess in Wisconsin, close to 60 percent um, and ended up with, you know, less than 50 percent of the uh, of the seats in, in the legislature. And that disconnect is uh, is fundamentally unfair and it's inconsistent with who we say we are, um, you know, as a people. But. If fairness is a emanation of democracy itself, then is gerrymandering the, the main target? I mean, you guys aren't attacking equal representation in the Senate, but the, the differences between, say, California and Wyoming representation are, are more unfair from that level than, you know, gerrymanderings in, in, in most of the states. So is there something unique about gerrymandering that has made it the, the focus of your work? Yeah, I mean, I think it is, it is an immediate problem in the sense that um, we saw what the impact was of the 2011, um, I would say, illegitimate um, redistricting process. And we have another one coming up in 2021. And we want to try to make sure that that process is, in fact, fair. We want to make sure that the census upon which that redistricting is done is fair in 2020. Um, but the questions you're talking about now are really more fundamental ones. But I think questions that we as a nation really need to ask ourselves. You know, we're looking at an electoral system when it comes to the presidency, for instance, 
that might have been, you know, might have had some, made some sense, although I'd argue that it didn't make an awful, awful lot of sense. It was, it was a product of compromise um, when the Constitution, um, you know, was, was put in place back in the, in the 18th century. And I think we have to ask ourselves in the 21st century, is the Electoral College, for instance, something that uh, needs to continue? And then I think there is a really fundamental question, I think, as we look at the ways in which our population is moving. Uh, I've read things that say that, you know, we potentially will have 70% um, of the people um, represented by 30% of the, the Senate at some point, you know, later in, the, in this century. Um, that's a question I think that, you know, we ought to be asking um, our, ourselves. But in terms of what I need to focus on immediately, I'm looking at a fair census and also um, a fair redistricting process. But that doesn't mean that I don't also think about, and I think the nation needs to think about, um, you know, the Electoral College, um, how the Senate is actually um, constructed. Uh, I think also the notion of, you know, term limits when it comes to um, you know, federal judges and in particular um, the Supreme Court. These are all kinds of things that made sense. Um, you know, as a product of compromise back in the, um, you know, the 18th century, but in the 21st, we should certainly question whether or not those systems are uh, consistent with the, the needs of the American people. I want to put a pin in the census question and, and, and come back to it. Back to the, this question of democracy, one of my concerns is that when you look at the Electoral College, when you look at the Senate, and the distribution of, of state partisanship, and when you look at gerrymandering and geography in the House, you have the anti-small-D Democratic elements of the system all give a partisan boost to the Republican Party. And the effect of that seems to me to be that democracy is becoming a position of the Democratic Party and gerrymandering, voter ID laws, different kinds of voter obstacles, and a, just a less democratic system is becoming the position of the Republican Party. And that looks like a very dangerous place for a system to be in when there becomes to be a divergence, begins to be a divergence on the fundamental rules under which the system should operate. Mm -hmm. Are we going there? Yeah, I, I think that is a legitimate concern. It is one thing for the parties to disagree about policy uh, and have questions about how our you know, what economic policies we should follow, what, what, how should we be conducting our, our, our foreign policy. I mean, those are legitimate concerns. But when we are in a process where you have the two parties fighting about the system itself, that I think gives me, um, that gives me great concern. When you have Democrats, and I, you know, I think that I'm being pretty objective when I say this, when you say that you have Democrats essentially fighting for, um, for fairness, and Republicans fighting to protect um, their illegitimately um, obtained gains uh, through a variety of techniques, whether it's you know gerrymandering, um, these voter suppression laws, uh, what they've tried to do, what they're trying to do in connection with the, the census and the inclusion of that citizenship question. You know, there's a whole variety of things that Republicans um, are, are doing that I think are um, anti-democratic and um, inconsistent with who we say we are as a people, what our, our values are, and ultimately corrosive 
um, and will have a really negative impact on the nation. And, you know, Mitch McConnell and all the folks who are doing all, all these things um, can think about short-term political gain, but without any feeling for or any concern for what this means over the, the long term and the harm that is done um, done to the nation. But isn't it working out for them? I mean, Mitch McConnell says that the single most important decision he's ever made was blocking Merrick Garland. And I think that you can say that that worked out great. It arguably helped elect, maybe arguably elected Donald Trump. And it gave Republicans not just continued control of the Supreme Court, but it also allowed them to push back gerrymandering cases. It allowed them to keep Citizens United around. It allowed them to keep building the rules such that Republicans can keep power. So it looks to me that if you believe what Mitch McConnell believes and if you're on Mitch McConnell's side, you know, he goes down as a hero. Oh, well, you know, I mean, yeah, you can say that in 2019, but history is long. And um, history is written not at the moment, but over time. And um, the impact of um, what happens in 2019 doesn't necessarily mean that because it's good for the Republican Party now, it will be judged good by historians as something that they should be proud of or that it will have a positive impact for the Republican Party as the years pass. People's, you know, you, you galvanize the opposition by taking unprincipled steps like keeping Merrick Garland from a vote. That galvanizes the opposition. People have memories. The electorate has a collective memory. And um, that which you are successful in doing today can have negative political consequences um, in the future. And certainly, it's not something that, you know, you, you can be on the wrong side of history and have, um, you know, short-term um, political gain. And I suspect that that's how history is going to view that which McConnell did, especially with regard to, uh, you know, to Mary Garland and with regard to all the other things that the party itself is doing uh, on a more widespread basis when it comes to, you know, these voter suppression laws, uh, you know, all the other things that they are doing to try to maintain power almost at, uh, at any cost. You know, I have a colleague who makes a point that we have this desire for divine punishment, but because it's not really a language we have anymore, we, we turn to this idea that history will judge you, right? That that there will be this punishment after you're gone, um, and it will be the way you're written about or not written about in history books. And I always think about that when I hear this. I always wonder if Mitch McConnell cares how he's thought about in history or, you know, he'll get a good, you know, whenever he does end this role, he'll get a good lobbying job. He'll be he'll be uh, here to contemporary Republicans. Maybe it'll maybe it'll turn out fine for him. But I want to go back to something on gerrymandering, which is your view and, and your, your organization's view is that gerrymandering should not be a partisan activity. It should be given to independent commissions as it is in states like California. Um, you came out against a plan from New Jersey Democrats to entrench a more aggressive pro-democratic gerrymandering, pro-large-D democratic gerrymandering in New Jersey. Something, uh, a point somebody made to me is that it's easy to imagine a world where groups like yours are very uh, persuasive in bluish states. And so Democrats end up with relatively neutral maps because a lot of in a lot of those states, they currently gerrymander in their own direction. But it's not very persuasive in red states. So Republicans keep gerrymandering aggressively. And so what you end up having is unilateral disarmament in the gerrymandering wars by Democrats. And this partisan effort for good governance means 
a larger kind of delta for Republicans in drawing maps. Do you worry about that? No, I mean, I think that, you know, it's not as if I'm only looking at, um, you know, Democratic states and saying, look, New Jersey and the other Democratic states, you, you can't, um, you know, you shouldn't gerrymander. And that's the only thing I'm doing. No, you know, what I'm doing with the NDRC is really looking at the nation um, as a whole. And we are working in red states to make those systems more fair. You know, we're fighting for, you know, those ballot initiatives, um, an advocacy campaign. We're bringing lawsuits in those states. We're trying to elect Democrats um, in those states so that we um, redress the imbalances that were inappropriately put in place by the Republicans. So, yeah, I mean, yeah, I, I certainly want to get to a point where we are simply doing things in a fair way. But that doesn't mean that I'm naive. And under, I understand that, um, you know, there's a fight that we need to have in red states in dealing with entrenched, illegitimately obtained um, power. And we're trying to use all the mechanisms that we have available to us to overcome that entrenched power and make fair those systems. Because I'm really confident that if we do that, if we are, if we are successful in, in red states and let the people um, decide that, um, you know, Democrats, progressives, as I said, will do, will do just fine. That doesn't mean that we're going to, you know, Democrats, progressives are going to suddenly turn Wyoming blue um, or, you know, Idaho blue. I, that, that I suspect is not going to happen. Um, but states like, you know, North Carolina, um, Ohio, Wisconsin, Michigan. These are, are, are places that have Republican legislatures to a degree that they should not have. And um, once you do that, then we can start talking about, um, you know, fairness in a way that um, is more universal. But I, um, think you know, the, I think the concern here is not that you're not going to be trying in those red states, um, to be fair to the critics here. It's that you're going to convince the blue states, right? California is already there. Um, you're going to convince, say, New York. But that in Texas, you're going to get rebuffed. You're going to fail. Uh, it's not that you're not going to try. It's that you're going to fail. Because for the exact reason we were just talking about, you just said that, you know, it is clear that if Republicans are playing on more fair ground in a lot of these states, they know they're going to lose quite a lot of power. And they don't want to lose that power. And those states are red. Um, and they're red for a reason. Uh, and in many of those states, you have majorities, you know, big majorities of Republicans. And so that the end outcome will be a world where you have a pretty solid blue approach to redistricting, which is independent. You know, maybe the purple states are a little bit mixed and the red states are, are putting a heavy thumb on the scales. And that that will be a, a place where, you know, Democrats end up with a significant disadvantage. Yeah. See, but I don't think I don't buy into the notion that change is not possible in red states. And so the question is, what's the mechanism in every state that you can use that will change um, that state? And it'll be different approaches in, in different states. North Carolina, for instance, I think is so gerrymandered that uh, an electoral approach will probably not work there. And that's why we brought a lawsuit. In the state court system, I want to point out, we brought a lawsuit in the state court system, um, as we did in Pennsylvania, where, uh, again, under the state constitution, the courts there ruled that what the Republicans had done violated the, the Pennsylvania state constitution. Same theory that we're using in, in North Carolina. If we are successful in that lawsuit, and I think we will be, it will ultimately be decided by the North Carolina Supreme Court. If we're successful there, well, that really unlocks North Carolina in a really significant way. And that red state 
can then become what I think it is, kind of a, you know, kind of a, a purple state. And I would argue that probably, probably leans a little blue, leans a little blue. And so, you know, fighting for litigation in, in North Carolina is, will work. In other states, you know, we take, even in these gerrymandered districts, we fight to have, we, we fight for electoral um, success. You know, we you look. We you know we won governors' races um, last in 2018. We flipped legislative chambers. We broke super majorities um, in in red states. So you know we passed ballot reform measures in like in Utah, in Missouri. Um, these are red states. You know that that's another thing I think people have to understand. You know, yeah, if I ask the Republican legislature in Texas to do the right thing, they're not going to do the right thing. On the other hand, if you appeal to the people. In, in Texas and make sure that they understand the impact, the impact of um, this partisan gerrymandering and how it affects their lives on a day-to-day basis. Ultimately, the power of the people can, um, can overcome the resistance, the, the inappropriate resistance by the, uh, those who hold um, power, the Republican Party. Let me ask you about the legal side of this. What tends to make a gerrymander unconstitutional versus one that is constitutional? Well, I mean, I think, you know, there are a number of factors. Um, You look at um, whether or not a particular district has uh, communities of interest, whether there's some geographic sense to it, you know, contiguity uh, makes sense. You look at these districts and, uh, you know, it's, I guess I I forget who the justice was, you know, I don't can't define pornography, but I know it when I see it. Well, you can look at these gerrymandered districts and you can tell um, when they are gerrymandered. It had one in Pennsylvania that was called, I guess, Goofy Kicking Donald Duck. And it was, you know, drawn in all kinds, in a very strange looking district. Things that tend to look more like, you know, recognizable geometric um, shapes where you're not splitting communities either um, along racial lines, um, geographic lines, you know, demographic lines. There's a, there's a whole variety of things, I think, that go into um, coming up with, with, with what looks like an appropriately drawn um, district. Right now, with Kennedy gone and Kavanaugh seated on the Supreme Court, is there a chance of a Supreme Court solution, a national Supreme Court solution on gerrymandering? Well, there, there certainly should be. Um, the court has had before it, you know, the Wisconsin and Maryland case, I guess North Carolina case is bouncing back up there now. If you look at North Carolina and if you look at w- Wisconsin, and you can't say that um, you know, under the theories that were advanced, you know, First Amendment, um, you know, the, the scientific test that was used, if you can't say that there's something wrong there, something unconstitutional there, I just don't quite understand how the court can can pass and simply say that that's consistent with um, the founders' view of of the republic. Um, now it'll be interesting to see what happens. Justice Kennedy seemed to be one who was, you know, essentially said, "You you can go too far," but I don't think I've ever seen a, a test that could be used by, by judges. It's now, like he's gone. It's like porn. You know it when you've seen it. But I've never. I mean, I've never seen it. I never. I never look at anything like that. <laughs> Me either. I'm just just talking theoretically here, you know. Um, Now we have Justice Kavanaugh, and it'll be interesting to see, um, you know, what 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 he does. So hopefully the court will do the right thing there. But but, you know, we're not going to be reliant on and waiting for um, a United States Supreme Court decision. That's why we are going through the states and the state constitutions and where we have that capacity, where we have that ability, uh, we're going to be bringing those lawsuits as we did in Pennsylvania and as we recently filed in, uh, in North Carolina. Support for the gray area comes from Shopify. 
Imagine an action movie where the hero has to sell 1,000 Barbra Streisand t-shirts in 72 hours to save a major American city. Save the city from what, exactly? That's for audiences to decide. But how would they do it? They'd use Shopify. Shopify is the global commerce platform flexible enough to help your business sell at every stage of growth, whether you're the main character in a tentpole action movie or the real-life CEO of a multinational company. No matter what you're making, Shopify can help you sell it. From their all-in-one e-commerce platform to their in-person point-of-sale system, Shopify offers the flexibility to support your operation. They also offer something called Shopify Magic, an AI-powered helper created to help you stress less and sell more. Try it for yourself. You can sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash box. You can go to shopify.com slash box now to grow your business, no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash box. This episode is brought to you by State Farm. You've heard it before. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. But it's more than just a tagline. Because State Farm agents are small business owners themselves who live and work in your community. And if you're in the market for small business insurance, who better to work with than an agent who understands what it takes? State Farm agents can help you create a personalized insurance plan that fits your small business needs and budget. Talk to your local State Farm agent today about small business insurance. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Tell me a bit about the concerns over the 2020 census, because this is an issue that I think a lot of people are not uh, are not that up on. Yeah, I mean, people really need to focus on uh, on the census to make sure that we have an accurate count. I mean, yeah, you know, when it comes to 2021, the lines will be drawn on the basis of the census. What people also need to understand is about $675 billion in federal aid. Um, for infrastructure, for education, is also doled out on the basis of the census that is done in in, in 2020. And so we want to have a fair count. We want to have an accurate count. And the um, Trump administration's desire to include this citizenship question is really um, an attempt to suppress the vote in a particular community, in the Hispanic community. Talk to me like I've never heard of this before. Like, what do you mean by a citizenship question? Yeah. What they want to do is include on the long form uh, of the the census for the first time since 1950, a question that um, asks people who are replying to the census, are you a citizen of the United States? The Constitution says that you're supposed to count all the people in the United States. It doesn't say you're supposed to count all the citizens in the United States. And you're supposed to um, reapportion on the basis of the number of people that are in particular states, that are in particular um, districts. They want to include this citizenship question, uh, I think, first, as I said, to try to suppress um, the Hispanic um, response out of con- people being uh, expressing people in the Hispanic community being concerned that although they might be um, citizens, that if they raise their hands to be counted, it potentially puts at risk people um, who are undocumented and who they associate with. And so that is, I think, one of their uh, one of their theories. And by suppressing the um, Hispanic vote, which they, I think, rightly see as um, more Democratic than Republican. Um, they will have an ability to, when it comes to redistricting and the distribution of federal money, uh, put more money, uh, find greater numbers of seats for uh, Republican areas as opposed to Democratic ones. 
I think that a lot of people listening to this would just say, yeah, that makes sense. I mean, why not have a citizenship question on the census? Why shouldn't it? Why shouldn't we be counting people who are here legally rather than people who are here illegally? So make the case to me. You know, what, what, what would you say to somebody who says this is not a place where there should be a fight? Well, you know, this is not the way we—this is simply not the way we've done it. It's also not the way in which the founders said the the, um, census should be conducted. You know, people—Republicans always talk about originalism and what did the founders intend. Um, You know, they said count the people who are in um, the United States. They didn't say count the citizens who are in the United States. Um, The reality is that all the people who are in this country— have an impact on the quality of our lives, the resources that um, that they that they take. We need to know who is in the United States. A number of get a sense of you know what, what's the number of the people who are in, in in this country. Be they citizens, permanent residents, those who are here undocumented. We just need to to know that. And I I, I don't see why people you know fear that. Um, I see the political gain that can be made by um, trying to restrict the count that I think is unconstitutional to simply citizens, but uh, to do it in a way that's, again, consistent with what the, the, the founders' vision was. Um, and, and just from, from my perspective, in a, just a logical way, you should want to know um, how many people are here in the United States of America. It feels to me like this census fight and what's behind it is our entire politics right now in microcosm. And, and I wonder how you feel about this as somebody who served as the first African-American attorney general and served under the first uh, African-American president. It, it feels to me like the fundamental collision in America right now is between a political coalition that looks to a more diverse country in the future with hope and and, and sees that as a, as a change they can believe in, and a coalition that looks towards that with fear and wants to turn the clock back on it and literally build a wall against it to change the census so that in the count we make of the country, it looks more like the country that was than the country that is or is becoming. Um, it, it, it feels to me that it's a question of values, as a question of like, what are we really talking about in this country? Like, this is right there. Like, do we want to admit what the country is becoming or do we want to both try to make it something different and try to ignore what it is? Yeah, no, I think that's exactly right. I think that's a really fundamental difference between these parties. Um, the Republican Party is looking back. Um, you know, you hear it in what Trump says, make America great again. And I always ask myself, I'd like to ask him, so, Mr. President, when exactly was America great? In your, from your perspective, was it back in the 19th century when we had slavery? I guess clearly not. Was it great when um, women didn't have the right to vote? I assume not. Was it when we had a, a system essentially of American apartheid? I, I assume not. Um, but the Republican Party is looking back towards um, an America that they think existed um, and they think was, you know, a, a good America. And my argument would be there that, yeah, you know, you look at Leave it to Beaver and that was great and June Cleaver with her pearls and, you know, you know cleaning the house and all of that stuff. That's an America that never really, that existed in the, in the minds of certain people. But that was also a time when women were treated in um, unfair, inappropriate ways, when people of color 
um, did not have all the rights to which they were entitled as, as American citizens. That's uh, you know that's that's the the, the, the the America that Donald Trump um, and the Republican Party look to. The Democratic Party, by by contrast, is willing to look forward, look to the future, and that's that's an interesting thing. You know, it, to embrace the uncertainty of the future. Um, that is something that is pretty bold because, uh, as I just said, you know, the future is always uncertain. But America is always at its best when we have embraced the challenges, the uncertainties of the future, and then tried to mold that future in an American way. It's what produced the American century, um, you know, that made the 20th century an American century. And that attitude can make the 21st century uh, an American century as, as well. This is a good bridge to something that, that I've long wanted to talk to you about. So it's one month after Obama's elected president where it's supposed to be our grand post-racial future. You know, people are, are excited. And you give this speech uh, saying that though this nation has proudly thought of itself as an ethnic melting pot, in things racial, we have always been and continue to be in too many ways, essentially a nation of cowards. What led you to say that at that time? Like, what was the thinking that led to you to write the speech in that way at that moment? Yeah, you know, it's um, it was a it was a Black History Month speech. And so I was focused on, you know, that theme, um, black history. And I think that one of the things you got to do, you got to read that speech in its entirety. Um, and I, I looked at it about uh, three, four weeks ago. And it's, it's actually held I've up. I've got lots of quotes from it here. Don't worry. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And I think it's actually held up, um, held up pretty well. And what I wanted to do was to, um, you know, to, to say something a little controversial, uh, to stir some conversation. I didn't anticipate it was going to cause that much, you know, conversation, that much controversy. But I, I think that what I said was was accurate. You know, we we always talk about how this nation is 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 a melting pot, and yet we become expert at avoiding um, really kind of the difficult racial conversations. And I say in speech, you know, these conversations are, are certainly going to be painful, at, certainly at the beginning, and maybe painful throughout. But they are necessary. Um, conversations if we want to make real racial um, progress. And so that was the, the point that I was making. Um, not that Americans are, you know, generally cowards or anything like that. I mean, that's the way the right has tried to characterize it. It was really about our our fear. And from both sides, whether you're a person of color or, or a person who's white, um, that we just don't talk to one another enough about um about racial things. Yeah, see, you, you, you say in the speech, we know by American instinct and by learned behavior that certain subjects are off limits and that to explore them risks at best embarrassment and at worst the questioning of one's character. And I was reading this speech, and one of the things I thought when I read it is that a lot of folks, I don't even want to say on the right here, uh, a lot of white folks would say, yeah, like this is actually why I'm afraid to talk about it, because if I make a mistake, I'm going to be, you know, I'm going to be called out for a microaggression or for being racially insensitive or for being racist or for not being politically correct. So is it the left's fault that people are so afraid here? No, I would say it's the left's fault. But I think that what you just said is a legitimate concern that I have heard expressed and that I understand. And that's what I was trying to say in that speech, that... Um, People need to be given the space to ask questions, to make observations, to not be labeled as in, you know, insensitive, as, as racist. Um, you know, people can come from a genuinely good place and want to, you know, understand 
and um, express things that might not be politically correct, but that are are genuinely felt. And you know, one is a mechanism for people to get to, you know, the America that that we want to have. And people, I was trying to say, need to have um, need to have that space. Don't need to have their motivations um, questions. Um, they don't need to be labeled uh, as anything. That um, you know, we can't have. You know the racial police coming in and saying you can't say that, um, or if you say that, you are this kind of, this this kind of person. Uh, I was really doing what I could in that speech to try to foster the dialogue that I don't think as a na- we as a nation um, we as a nation have uh, often enough. I, I was trying to think reading the, the speech if I was sure that having those conversations would really lead to a more tolerant or more open or more loving um, country. Uh, A a part of me read that and thought, is Trump in some ways an example of what people talking more honestly about race with less fear of offending each other, with less fear of what is politically correct sound like is, you know, we were talking a couple minutes ago about there being a pretty large coalition in this country that just thinks this is getting worse. The way this is going is getting worse. The way the country is as it is becoming more diverse um, is getting worse. The way I feel in it is worse. And I think Trump speaks very powerfully for them. And I think he speaks for them in a way that is a lot less polite and a lot less careful and a lot more willing to have in some ways a hard conversation than those who came before them. But it's not felt to me like a like a better conversation, just having like having a more honest collision between these visions of America and between the ways that demographic change makes people feel has not felt to me like it has led to a, a, a better place in this country. So I'm, I'm curious how you reflect on the Trump experience in, in, in the context of, of, of this argument. Yeah. I mean, I, I think that, again, if I'm going to give people the, the space to say um, that which they truly feel, the people who are saying these things that might seem, at least in the fir- in first blush, you know, offensive or, you know, of, of concern, these folks have to be willing to accept facts that I might, you know, share with them. And that, I think, is the, the Trump problem. Um, he bases policy and observation on stereotypes, prejudices, as opposed to, uh, as opposed to facts. You know, he's going to speak, um, you know, about... Um, you know, the need for emergencies and borders, you know, out of control with terrorists and everything. And, you know, there's no factual basis to the things, many of the things that that, that he says. And, you know, he's squandered um, because he lies so much. That which an American president, I think, really has to have. People have to believe, you know, the president. Um, When when John Kennedy in 1962 says that there are missiles, um, Russian missiles in in Cuba, and before we see the pictures and all that stuff, um, as we're going to impose a naval, you know, quarantine, you've got to believe the president. And, you know, if we get to a crisis situation with this president, are the American people going to believe Donald Trump? You know, his diehard supporters, which, you know, is ever shrinking, I guess will, I don't know, I'm not even sure they believe it. You know, they're willing to take, I think, his his falsehoods because they believe in some of the policy positions that um, that he espouses. I don't think they necessarily believe him. And um, uh, so, so I think, you know, if we're going to have people express these concerns, these, these views, um, they've got to be willing to accept facts as uh that might come back at them to uh, to shake some of those those beliefs, those stereotypes that they um, they adhere to. 
But but that feels to me a little bit like looking for the world as we as we think it ought to be as opposed to to as it is. Re- agreeing for a minute that we should have a high bar for our precedents and that Donald Trump, um, I think probably in both of our views, does not does not meet it. Uh, in, in terms of the way just people experience the world, we're just not that fact-based. Um, you know, most of us and, and a lot of those of us who are or think we are are kind of not too, right? We're motivated in our reasoning and we're biased towards our group. And, you know, we listen to some groups and not others. And, you know, and even, you know, there's all this evidence that the smarter you are, the easier it is to deceive yourself by putting together, you know, a lot of facts that are not the full picture. Um, you know, people like climate change deniers have a lot of facts about climate change. They're just wrong or they're wrong in the way they put them together. And so... I guess the question I have for you in this, because there's a part of it that is very um, appealing to me, is, you know, how how would these conversations happen? You know, something something in that speech was that it was a very general speech. You know, how would you how how would you imagine these conversations happening? Because what you point out that as this country changes, that either we're going to find a way to sort of talk through it and and and, and live through it and and you know come closer together through it, or it's going to tear us apart, feels right to me. But when I look around, I feel like we're seeing the tearing apart. And I feel like part of that's because nobody knows, nobody has a, a good model for what these better conversations should look like or, or what the structure under which they would happen is. Yeah. You know, I, I mean, I think these conversations happen in a whole variety of ways. They happen, you know, at the workplace. They happen in social situations. They happen, um, you know, where people gather. As I said in the speech, you know, we have to create in some ways artificial mechanisms to foster these conversations. And, you know, Black History Month, I think I said in the speech, is, you know, one of these artificial mechanisms that we can use to talk about the experience of black people um, in this country, the ongoing problems of being a person of color in this country. And these are not things that are necessarily going to just flow naturally, at least certainly at the beginning. Um, But I think these are the kinds of conversations that I think we can construct, that we can have. And yeah, I think people, you know, maybe are not fact-based, um, but I think it, it's more ignorance than anything that I think we have to be concerned about. You know, um, people, folks in the North, you know, white people in the North, didn't care maybe an awful lot or to care to the degree that they should have about what black folks were dealing with uh, in the South in the you know, 1940s, 1950s, you know, the, the early part of the, of, the, of the 20th century. And yet... When um, they saw pictures of uh, you know, demonstrators and how they were treated, when they saw, you know, dogs let on people, fire hoses put on people, when they saw my late sister-in-law, you know, being denied the opportunity to enroll at the University of Alabama, um, that kind of information, you know, that factually based information, moved people. Uh, it moved this nation. And I always, you know, I'm, I'm optimistic um, that, uh, you know, that the sharing of information can move this country in, in positive ways. And, you know, if we retreat into those racial cocoons that I talked about in, in the speech, it's easy to demonize, it's easy to stereotype people. You know, you can talk about immigrants and how bad they are. 
But if you happen to know people who um, are recent immigrants and you see that they are hardworking, that they want the same kinds of things that um, that you do, that they want their kids to have a good education, they want to be in neighborhoods that are, you know, are, are crime free, that they work hard, it's hard to demonize a, a person like that. And that's why this interaction, I think, is so so vitally important. I've heard people say that this country needs something akin to a Truth and Reconciliation Commission for its own racial past, that it wasn't enough to pass a couple of laws, that we actually need to have a kind of conversation and an airing of what happened and and what is happening and how it has been experienced in some kind of protected national space. Do you, do you think there's something to that? Yeah. I, you know, I, I think I'm not sure exactly how you would construct it, but I think um, something like that would be would be a positive to have, you know, a frank conversation, a frank um, airing of historical wrongs, um, present day concerns in a protected space, as you as you put it. And somehow draw national attention to that 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 process. That be that would be a good thing. And uh, you know, it would be <laughs> something that in the in this era would be seen as partisan and people trying to gin up you know political bases and all of this stuff. But it is you know pulling taking away the the, the partisanship and thinking just about you know the health uh, of the nation. I think that something like that would. Uh, would have positive, would have a positive impact. Well, I don't even know if it'd be seen as partisan. The thing that I think it'd be seen as above all is divisive. I think one of the deep divides on race in this country is between people who think that there's nothing to talk about, that we should be over this, and the problem is some people just like won't let us move on. Um, you know, we we passed the Civil Rights Act. You know, we passed the, the the Voting Rights Act so much so that, in fact, the Supreme Court decided part of it didn't matter anymore. Um, that, that it's time to move on. That it's time to stop. You know, having this conversation. And then and then people say, who you know, make the argument that no, like there's so much we don't know, and there's so much that is not understood by people who haven't experienced it. And so much of conversations about political correctness and identity politics and playing the race card and affirmative action actually feel to me like they come down to this underlying question of, do you believe that there is some conversation we need to have here or not? Or do you believe the problem is there are these people in this country who keep making us have this conversation instead of just talking about class or just talking about, you know, personal responsibility or culture or whatever it might be. And that feels like the the thing we can't get. I mean, in a relationship, right? If you have a marriage and one person feels like we've really got to talk about this trauma that happened a couple of years back because like it affects everything every day for me. And the other person feels it was years back. Like my cheating was years back. My abuse was years back. Like it is time for you to get over it. Like that relationship's not going to work out. Right? Like you need you need agreement on talking about the things that the things that are hard. And we just we really fundamentally don't have that. Yeah, you know, people say, you know, we keep having this conversation or we keep talking about these issues. And we, what we do is we have these superficial conversations about these issues. Um, we don't really get into the the guts of, you know, what happened um, to to people of color um, in our in our past, what the present day effects of uh, that treatment 
are. I mean, and how that how it still exists. What what the impact of that that treatment still exists here in the in the twenty first century? We don't talk about that um, in an in depth way. We just kind of you know poke at it every now and again, and we think, all right, well, we've talked about that enough. Let's go to, let's go to something else. I mean, as, as I said in that speech, these are conversations that are painful. They are painful. Um, you know, if you're using your analogy, all right, you're in the, a relationship and somebody's had an, an affair, you have to have that painful conversation. Why did this happen? Um, what, what, is, what does that affair mean? Um, is it a reflection of some kind of you know, deep um, and abiding problem in this relationship? Was it simply a mistake? Um, those are the kinds of conversations that I think you have in relationships about a whole variety of things. I'm a married person and I've had a whole variety of conversations with my wife about, you know, kids and whatever. And as a nation, it's, it's a difficult thing. Again, these are not easy conversations to have. They're not easy conversations to construct. But I still think, um, as I did back in February of, I guess, 2009, that these are necessary conversations. So I want to ask you about something else in, in that Obama administration period. We have this Facebook group for The Weeds, which is our, our policy podcast. And I often go to it and ask for, you know, are there things people would like to hear me uh, ask of guests here? And the overwhelming top question I got for you was, why didn't the Department of Justice send more bankers to jail during the financial crisis? Well, because on the basis of Justice Department policy, the facts that we were able to uncover, the law um, as it exists, we were simply unable to make those cases. Now, I think we'll, we start with this start with this basic um, understanding that we got record amounts of money from these financial institutions who we found did inappropriate things with regard to mortgage-backed securities. Record amounts of money, billions of dollars that we didn't put in the federal treasury, but we did move back to people who had been um, unfairly treated. And so, you know, I've gotten letters from people who said, thanks for, you know, helping me get, it, you know, get money back and all that stuff. So, there, so let's, we start with that as kind of a foundation. And I think people need to ask themselves, do you actually think that if we could have made these cases with the aggressive U.S. attorneys that I served with, that we would not have brought them? You know, we have a Justice Department policy that says you can't bring a case unless you have a better than 50% chance of winning that case. And as you looked at the the, the way, the fact patterns that, that, that we had, the diffuse way in which decision-making um, was made in the banks, and look at the state of the law as it existed, um, we simply were unable to bring those cases. As I, when I left, I gave a speech at NYU, and I said, we need to change um, that law. We need to change the standards um, that we have to meet in order to bring these kinds of cases. I mean, if we could have brought those cases, we certainly would have. We simply, as a result of the facts and the law as it exists, existed and I guess continues to exist, um, just had a hard time in, um, in, in bringing, bringing those cases. So, so you obviously have so much more information about these cases and, and the underlying laws here than I do. And so I don't, I don't question any of that. Um, or, or if I tried to, I'd fail. But what I want to ask you about that is that, does that then suggest if the financial system could crash the global economy, if there could be the patterns of fraud that we've identified, and the Justice Department can look at these cases and say, we're probably not going to win any of them. Does that suggest that our laws around finance are simply wrong? Or is the fact that this question keeps coming up 
mean that, you know, there is some there is a desire for vengeance in the population that that's just the problem, that the problem is people want a punishment for something that was, you know, business decisions or, or economic outcomes. Are, are we an unjust society or we, are we an overly vengeful polity? No, I, I think people had, you know, le- expressed legitimate outrage at that period um, where you had, you know, the bailouts, um, where you had the average person, um, you know, with a, a mortgage, you know, maybe losing their house. I mean, no, that I don't think was vengeful. I think there was, you know, legitimate concern about the way in which that whole thing um, played out. But I, I think it's not only a question of changing, you know, our, our criminal laws and the standards, you know, as I said in that, in, in that speech. I also think we have to look back at, you know, some of the policies that we have put in place when it comes in. You're, you know, you're more the economist, you know, than I am. But look at, the, you know, the, the, at the changes that we um, that we have made over the years when it comes to, you know, economic regulation. Um, this whole notion of deregulation and uh, has not necessarily been all good. And um, you know, getting back to some of the things that we put in place as a result of you know, our reaction to the depression and a lot of these New Deal um, things that we, that we put in place are, are, were actually good. And the unwinding of those, um, those statutes, those regulations, has not necessarily been something that uh, uh, has been good for, for the country. But agreeing with that and agreeing that there are a lot of policy changes we should make, given, given what the policy was, in your view, should what people did, should what bankers did have been illegal? Should what bankers did have been prosecutable with jail time? Yeah. I mean, to the extent that you could hold individuals, individuals as opposed to institutions, in the extent you could show that individuals made um, determinations uh, to engage in fraudulent conduct with regard to uh, the the sale of these mortgage-backed securities. If you could make those kinds of cases, yes, people should have been held criminally liable. And we looked at, we made attempts to, to do exactly that. I assigned cases to specific U.S. attorneys, specific banks were given to a, you know, particular, let's say, you know, the, the First National Bank of whatever was given to a U.S. attorney in a particular place. I picked my best U.S. attorneys and said, all right, you know, do all that you can with regard to holding the bank um, as a, as an entity responsible, but then look for individuals within that bank who need to be held um, who need to be held accountable. And so that's how that's the mechanism that we put together. And then I guess on a weekly basis, I had a U.S. attorney come in and report to me on the, the First National Bank of whatever. Um, so where do we stand with regard to holding the bank responsible, and how does it look with regard to holding um, individuals um, accountable? And so that's the process that we went through. Those are the attempts that uh, that we made. So I hear you when you say the cases weren't there. I, I guess my question is, were the laws wrong and they should have been there? Were the laws wrong such that it, it's a hard – the question of whether people were engaged in fraud or whether or whether they engaged in societally like weaponized irresponsibility I think is a, is a difficult and an interesting one. And I, I hear you say that you know if people engaged in fraud, it should have been illegal. But it's not clear, I, I assume, because the cases weren't brought that they did. And so uh, I, I guess the the thing that a lot of people feel, and the thing that I feel to be to be honest about it, is that that level of social irresponsibility, um, it seems like something should be wrong with it. Um, and is that a question for the legal system or not? Like, what are is our standard there so high, or are our laws there so permissive 
that we're missing something fundamental that is necessary to bring the right incentives to that industry. Yeah. I mean, I think people have to understand there's a, there's a difference between things that happened that were wrong and things that were illegal. And there's no question that there were a lot of things that happened during that era that were wrong. My determination as attorney general was to define, was to find things that were illegal. Now, when it comes to dealing with the stuff that was wrong, you know, uh, why didn't we have, you know, really robust congressional hearings and to examine what happened um, during that uh, during that era, and try to look at um, what happened, why it happened, and come up with ways in which we would deal with that so that it wouldn't happen again. Now there were some things that were done. I think that you know, Consumer Financial Protection Board put together, um, you know, and, and and other things. I think that that was you know that was appropriate. I'm not sure that we as as a nation did enough uh, and and push back against, you know, the, the, the special interests um, who, were, who would see these reform efforts as um, being inconsistent with, you know, what was in their best interest. Although they might have been in the best interest of, of the country, those special interests um, were successful in, I think, circumventing, um, you know, asking for, asking appropriate questions and coming up with um, putting in place more mechanisms so that we don't have a, a repeat of what happened um, you know, in 2007, 2008. So one of the reasons I ask this is because I think it loops back to the broader conversation we were having at the beginning over redistricting and good government. There's this feeling that um, partisans, and in this case particularly Republicans, are, are rigging the political system. Uh, and, and that that's a big problem. But there's also, I think, a belief that the rich are rigging the system, both by writing too many of the laws um, directly through political contributions and influence and lobbying, and then in having too much voice in their enforcement, in the guidance given to agencies, in in the way sort of laws are shaped in context in society. Do you, do you think that's right? Do you think that the rigging of the rich is as big or a similar kind of problem to the rigging of the, the GOP? Well, I don't think there's any question that um, the system is rigged in a whole variety of ways, um, politically, as we have talked about the way in which the Republican Party has uh, has tried to rig the system when it comes to gerrymandering and voter suppression. And then those um, special interests and those people who are, you know, extremely well off have disproportionate amounts of control of, um, of our, our, our system, um, disproportionate amounts of, of, of power that is tied to, um, to economic, economic wealth. And uh, I think we need to, you know, we need to, to, to realize that, you know, I, I think in some ways we are in another gilded age. You know, and I think that, you know, I think we are on, on the verge of seeing a reform, um, a period of reform that um, will be consistent with what we saw in response to the end of the, the gilded age at the beginning of, of the 20th century. I really do think that we are, you know, people are, are really starting to, to, to focus on, you know, economic disparities. Um, uh, you know, when you, you start talking about Medicare um, for all, when you start, people start getting concerned about um, the way you see income in, in, inequality. Uh, this is starting to seep into um, the concerns of the general population. And I think that you will see policies that ultimately will um, reflect those um, those more general those more general concerns. And as I said, I think if you want to get a sense of what this new reform era will look like, uh, I, I think you look at the early part of the 20th century, and you'll you'll see 
a, a similar kind of reform uh, reform movement. Is this part of the unfinished business of the Obama administration? I think sometimes about the way in which um, President Obama's 2008 campaign was very much about special interests and lobbyists and the ways in which the political system itself felt unfair. And then you get into office and there's a recession and there's always this trade-off between are you going to use your political capital on policy like the Affordable Care Act or the stimulus bill that can immediately and positively affect people's lives? Or are you going to use that capital on rewriting the rules of the system itself, working on money and politics and gerrymandering and lobbying reform and, and, and all these different things? And so over and over and over again, uh, politicians, I think, run on changing politics, but then get in and realize or feel that the priority has to be changing policy. Um, do you think, uh, you know, given what you're now focusing on outside, you know, after the Obama administration, that that President Obama himself has has merged OFA into uh, Organizing for America into your group, is this the unfinished business that Democrats need to prioritize that political reform agenda for a while above the policy reform agenda next time they get power? You know, I don't, I don't think that you necessarily have to choose. I mean, I think we need to change. Um, we need fundamental change. We need fundamental change. Um, we need to ask questions about our politics and the way in which our political system works. You know, and I also think you know, this notion of, you know, political capital, I mean, I get that. But that's, you know, if you focus on that too much, you know, we have the ability to walk and chew gum at the, at the same time. You know, and I understand that we were focused on, you know, the administration was focused on the Affordable Care Act and making sure that that was something that had to had to be had to be passed. Um, it was a little frustrating to be at the Justice Department when I, there were things that, you know that I wanted to to push that had to kind of take a, a back seat. And I remember thinking at the time, you know, we can we can push and you know we do all the things that we need to do with regard to the the ACA, um, but we also need to look at you know what's going on with our criminal justice system. Um, and you know the notion that you got you know 435 people in the in the House, 100 people in the Senate who can only do one thing, you know, one thing at a time, or an administration can only do one thing um, at a time. You know, you look at what, what Franklin Roosevelt did in, in those first 100 days and what the New Deal w was all about. I mean, that, in some ways, I think, is, you know, is government at its best. You know, you know yeah, they, you'd say it was just economic stuff, but, I mean, you, they, you know, that administration, that president— um, changed this nation in a whole variety of ways. And we still have that capacity. You know, we've lost faith in, you know, it, I mean, it starts, I think, with the inauguration of, of Ronald Reagan. You know, the problem is not the people, the problem is, is government. We've lost faith in our, our governing capacities. And um, I think that um, we need to, you know, be a little bolder. Um, we need to to think big things, um, you know, when it comes to climate change, you know, how we can deal with this problem. How about a moonshot? You know, think of, of climate as, 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 a, as a moonshot and deal with um, climate at the same time that we're dealing with reforming our political um, system. We can do all of these things. Um, we, have that, uh, we have that capacity. So I know we are uh, out of time here, but I want to ask you before you go the question that I always used to end the podcast, which is, what are three books you've read over the years that have influenced you that you would recommend to the well, audience? Well, here, I, I would, I guess, share with the audience three books that I've read uh, most recently. Um, one is An Unfinished Life by Robert Dalek. Um, talks about uh, one of my heroes, John Kennedy, and, um, you know, his life, um, his impact 
um, on the nation um, and from the title, um, you know, the, the promise that was lost by his untimely um, death. Uh, the Collected Poems of Langston Hughes, um, my favorite poet, and uh, my wife gave me that book for uh, Christmas, and I've just been kind of going through that. It's uh, and reaffirmed in me this the belief that uh, he is in some ways, I think, America, America's Poet Laureate. And then 1944 um, by Jay Winnick, uh, a really good book that um, examines the year, 1944, and really looks at what Roosevelt was doing then. It's really kind of interesting to see how uh, the interaction between the press and the, and the, and the president at, at that time, but more importantly, talks about how um, knowledge of the Holocaust was more widespread in the United States. You know, people have this, we, we work under this belief that, you know, American troops, Soviet troops um, discovered these camps um, and were, were shocked. And, you know, no one knew about them before that. And he makes a very convincing case that um, certainly the American government and the American people knew about this uh, to a much greater degree than um, we, I think, uh, have been willing to have been willing to accept. So those are three books that I've read um, and am reading, you know, now that I think I would recommend to everybody. Eric Holder, thank you very much. All right, thanks for having me. Thank you to Eric Holder for being here. Thank you to you for being here. Uh, thank you to UC Berkeley for hosting me for to doing these podcasts. Uh, to my engineer, uh, Jeffrey Geld, my producer, Jillian Weinberger. The Ezra Klein Show is a Vox Media podcast production, and we'll be back in a couple of days.